Welcome to another Sitting Dockside with Troy. Welcome, Prince. <laughs> it's been a little bit, but uh, nice to have you all back. We're going to do a cool, interesting podcast today from the viewers at our, basically our Facebook page, which is Troy. Lake and Pond Management Questions Content Community, the parent nonprofit of that Facebook page, which some people have forgotten and may not even know because our Facebook page now has almost 20,000 people on it, That's which right. is amazing. The parent nonprofit of that is www.pwnra.org, which stands for Private Waters National Natural Resource Association. Bring the rain, baby. Let's go. Yep. Yep. The goal is to educate, and that's why we're going to jump right in. But we're your hosts, Matt Rail and my Tennessee buddy, Troy Goldsby. Together, we have been working with lakes and ponds for over 40 years. And during that time, we have picked up on a ton of tips and tricks from lake owners and experts from all over the country. So if you want to learn how to catch some smiles from your kids or grandkids on your lake, or learn how to grow some memories on your pond, then come sit with us on Sitting Dockside. We asked the audience of those 20,000 people who said, hey, folks, ask your questions here. We're going to answer them live right here on, on Sitting Dockside. And it was a little bit and of argument about why in the heck people don't listen to the Sitting Dockside because you wouldn't have any more questions. That was That's uh, right. pretty funny. Colton, pretty Colton funny Wood was start. accurate. Colton Wood was accurate <laughs> in that statement. And I, I just yeah. want to preface this is that is that you're going to get two viewpoints here, and in, in these questions, fifty percent of them will be right, uh, and that will be my fifty percent. <laughs> oh, you, oh, that was good. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> the uh, the all right. So Trey asked. Which has happened to a lot of people, actually, because most states recommend a lot more catfish in their regular stocking rates than normally people want to stock. And a lot of times, even here in Indiana and in the Midwest, they actually recommend 100 per acre, which is a lot of fish, a lot of catfish per one acre. But he stocked uh, over 200 during his initial stocking. And they're starting to be, what happens is they get so large, become such a large biomass in the, in the entire pond. That they start to influence water quality, largemouth bass start to decrease because the forage base starts decreasing. Well, he asked, I have 150 of them that I want out. What's the best way of doing it? Um, chicken livers. <laughs> chicken uh, livers, yeah. No, there's you, a lot of times you can find folks, depending on where you live, you can find catfish trappers. Uh, that can be very, very effective, especially in cool water seasons at specifically trapping catfish. Uh, and that's what I have found to be the most effective way. Well, this is really cool. You know those noodles that you uh, swim with, like those swimming noodles? Sure. Well, they're exactly three-quarter inch in the middle of it. And one of my customers taught me this, and it's just, it's just fun as heck. Is he would cut them in half and run a three-quarter inch PVC down the middle of it and put a hole at the base of it. So it would be the same size plus two inches just so that the three-quarter inch pipe would just stick out about three inches. Drill the hole in that and then put a monofilament line two feet down and then put a, 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 his chicken liver or his, his bluegill on there. And he would throw these noodles out all over his pond and let them fish with him while he would sit back and have his beer or whatever he does, his iced teas, coffee. 
And then when the when the catfish hit on it, it would stick the noodle straight up in the air like this. Straight up. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So he yeah. knew when he was getting a bite. He would he knew when he was getting a bite. So the uh So yeah, you could do it that way. You could run trot lines, you could run uh, white yo-yo fishers which hang from trees and catch them. There's a lot of ways to remove when you're saying 150 fish. There's a lot of ways to do that. When you get into massive larger lakes that have just bukoodles of of catfish, uh, trapping then becomes a pretty uh, viable option. Yep. yep, there is things called uh, hoop nets and fike nets, which is a hoop net with a seine net at the end of it where the catfish would hit it, turn, um, and then go down into the hoop net itself. So, yeah, those are some examples on it. But trout lines and, and uh, noodle, well, noodle lines are these uh, big float lines or jug lines is uh, one of the most common ways I see commoners eat, do that. Commoners. There. Commoners. You're calling, yeah. you're calling the Facebook page listeners commoners. No, that's what I see the most common person doing that. That's oh, for okay. Sure. Remember Micah? Listen, Ooh, uh, Micah, Micah has asked on this, I mean, out of this, I don't know, 60 or 70 comments here, I think Micah's asked 30% of them. <laughs> no, Micah is actually a moderator to the to the Facebook page and has contributed awesome. I know. He's, he's uh, awesome, but he's asked too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is, a, he is into... Uh, Lake and Ponds, and I think it's I think it's cool. The uh, I'm he asks, which we'll save one of his questions towards the end because it's going to get us arguing at each other. But the uh, he says debate about structure, um, which we do a podcast two of them actually with the leading habitat structure guy uh, and Dr. Brian Grab, awesome guy. Dr. Brian Grab, awesome gentleman. Oh, yep, he, he is. And he answers a little bit of this question, but we're going to expand on it more. He says, like, the debate on habitat, you know, what fish habitat is the best? For example, sometimes people use tires, and that could be even debated. Is natural or artificial better? Um, uh, it, <laughs> you made, you made. Let's see how long I you can made, stammer about it. You made Troy basically pause. Like no, that. well, because I mean, this, that this doesn't happen comes, very often. I think I think artificial habitat is better uh, when we're talking about as well. So we've got two types of habitat. We have artificial habitat or habitat that is like trees and rocks and structures like that. And then we've got habitat that is vegetation. So if we set vegetation to the side of this discussion for a moment, I would say artificial habitat is better than using trees uh, and that type of stuff, uh, simply because it lasts forever uh, for the most part. Um, so I, I like artificial habitat and some of the artificial habitats that are being created now by folks like Brian and even Stephen Barden uh, are exceptional, exceptional habitats. So um, they, they last forever. They provide dense cover. Um, for small fish and on the outskirts and outside of those, there's kind of spatial cover uh, for ambush points and attack points and places for the bigger fish to get. So I, I like artificial habitat if we are not talking about aquatic vegetation. Does that make sense? Yep. I like now, uh, 
Yeah. But this is this is a budgetary question too. So if your budget doesn't allow for you to buy, some of these things are pretty expensive. But let's say you have a ton of cedar trees on your property, then you got to use cedar trees. I mean, you can make extremely nice, dense habitat with cedar trees if done correctly that will last for years and years, uh, but they still don't last as long as artificial structures. I think I agree with everything you said there. Well, of course. (laughs) Uh, And I'll expand just in case people uh, need a little more detail on that scenario is that my answer is yes, yes, yes. Usually I would say very few lakes and ponds that we go into nowadays have enough habitat and is what we are learning that is that the variety of types of habitat is very important. So small fish, three to fish that are not, uh, mature enough to reproduce like a three inch bluegill needs a place to hide to get to a large size before it gets hammered by a largemouth bass. So that takes a different types of habitat than an ambush predator like a largemouth bass needs to hide to be able to forage successfully without spending a lot of energy. So those are a lot of my answers is the the variety of habits that's very important. Now, when it, we could sit there and talk about do you put small habitats in the shallow end or high dense habitats in the shallow end? Do they need to be, you know, a fence or cedar tree or, you know, aquatic vegetation or shoreline stabilization plants? Those we could talk about that, and that's a little bit of a design scenario. Yeah, we and, could. I mean, we could talk about those things for literally hours. Hours. Yep. Hours. But. The, the two things I will highlight that are really high is one, look at some places in your lake that are not being used that are hard to fish to. Like the, maybe there's a cove that is really steep. So there's no bank fishing or a shallow inlet that is two to three feet. that has a lot of organics in that end, which a lot of dam ponds have. And try to utilize those area for successful scenarios like, like dense habitats where you can't be fishing in that area anyway. And then, also, looking at the variety is that ambush predators always like to hammer on around dense scenarios. So make sure you have ambush habitats in areas of high community or hold a lot of fish so the time per catch ratio is very low. For instance, at a point where you like to hang out, you want all the fish to be there. So also a good place to put a fish feeder too. Yeah. So I'll highlight can, those two. Yeah, what you Go can ahead, do in a scenario like what you can do in a scenario like that is have the point, the shallow section of the point lined with just all the way around the point lined with dense habitat for those three to five inch bluegill to get in and even smaller fish to get in and hide. And then as you move into the deeper water off of the point, use less dense, more spatial structure that would act as ambush points so that those bass can dart in and out as those bluegill or shiners or whatever's in that dense vegetation moves out that more spatial structure where the bass are kind of hiding out can dart in towards the vegetation or the dense structure and hammer those bluegills and forage as they move in and out of that dense structure. So um, that's how we try to design structure. That's right. That's right. Dense, structure, dense structure along the shoreline and shallows. And as you move out deeper, that, that structure not only becomes more spatial in terms of how it is located towards other structure, but also more spatial in how it is designed. So instead of having a cedar tree in 10 feet of water, you may have something that is 
uh, more vertical with a few limbs on it and not as dense as what a cedar tree would be. That's kind of hard yep. to visualize. Yep. It takes a little bit of a whiteboard on that one or a map. That's for sure. Green sunfish in pond. What are your thoughts on them? Should, should we be stocking green sunfish? If green sunfish are already present in a pond, what are each of your thoughts on their effect of the fishery? Uh, not much. They're going to get eaten. Uh, and that's about all they're going to do. So I've never really seen a green sunfish. I mean, you can get in Arkansas and some shallow ponds where they, they call them rice field slicks out there. Um, they can get pretty dense in some of those shallow ponds in Arkansas, but for the most part, it's tough for them to ever really get established. The bass just hammer them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not something I would recommend stocking. I kind of feel like it's a waste of money because they get hammered so quick, but um, yeah, they're not, I would not, I wouldn't worry about them if they're there, uh, but I wouldn't put them in if I don't have them. That's right. So green sunfish, I just had this question the other day. Had a new pond. I stocked some fish in it. A guy called a green sunfish. Said, hey, are you stocking green sunfish in here? Is it a problem? Well, one is that uh, a green sunfish are colonial uh, a, a fish that basically they love to, if you have any time your pond is able to connect with another body of water they will get there um so they will go uh, i've had them go miles through a tile to get to another pond or lake just in that tile i've seen them go through gravel if you go up to a uh they are great hiding places like if you go have a bunch of riprap and you walk up and scatter them they will go almost to the sides trying to get into those cracks alongside almost I almost said one of the places I always find them in lakes are in riprap embankments. Yep. When, when we're electrofishing, you hit that and green sunfish. If they're if they're in the water column, they come out of riprap. Yep. Lapomus cyanellus, by the way, is the uh, is the Latin name. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Latin and Latin name for green. The uh, that all being said, is green sunfish the benefits? They thought they were the perfect fish for food production so they hybridized them with the native bluegill and then became hybrid bluegill and that's between that's how you get a hybrid bluegill is with green sunfish so why do we want to hybridize them because green sunfish themselves have a large mouth when they're young very small to a small bass and so they actually become a little more uh, less omnivore more carnivore or, or piscivore if you really like the long words but the uh They'll go after other fish, and so they eat them. And so they, uh, a lot of times, don't get as dense as bluegill in there, so they're not as uh, abundant. So they're not great if you just have green sunfish only. Now, the the aggressiveness for a kid fishing is pretty cool because they get mean. And that's what makes a hybrid bluegill always more aggressive than a, than a native bluegill is, is that genetics of that particular fish. But here's where it's uh gets a little weird is that a male green sunfish, it's sexually maturity at you know about the size of your index finger. It's very small. I've actually seen them one and a half inches, Troy, and they're just uh ready to go. And so the the males get really small and the females grab um are having all these eggs and then they will they will get large and so 
they will over time never be able to take over the population because they just get hammered by largemouth. So we've had some ponds and I'll make this quick is that will come in and they've had a stress event because green sunfish can tolerate lower water quality than native bluegill. So all that's left is green sunfish. And they were like, do we need to kill it off? And I'm like, no, we'll add bluegill on top of it. We now fathead minnows won't get established, but, uh, added native bluegill on top of them. And then over a year came back, stuck the large mouth and came back four or five years later, there wasn't a green sunfish left. It was only native yeah. bluegill. That's so, right. uh, so just the case of your point, they just get end up getting eaten because they just don't get as big when that comes to it. Moving on emergency aeration. Tell me a little bit more about emergency aeration. This is a timely yeah. topic. Yep, timely. Hot of the year, August. It says, are fount- can a fountain can be even in emergency aeration? And yes. then what are other types of emergency aeration if needed? Here's the, here's the thing. Here's the, here's the problem with this question is it's a kind of a catch-22. Uh, you, you shouldn't be in the position to need emergency aeration if you were managing your pond properly. Um, if it's a real shallow pond, then you need probably multiple aerating fountains. If it's a four or five foot deep pond, because lake bottom can be pretty inefficient. Um, if it's deeper than that, then you need to have lake bottom aeration, which should prevent over 95% of any type of fish kill. Um, but yeah, look, if you see that your fish are struggling, then yeah, you need to turn every fountain on that you have, back your boat in, turn the motor on, froth the water. I've had, I've backed bush hogs into lakes before and you just kind of lightly set them down in there. You can buy paddle wheel aerators. You can buy paddle wheel aerators that are pretty inexpensive. But all of that is a reactive uh, scenario when you could have been proactive uh, and eliminated um, the chance of this happening. And listen, here's the thing. You're going to get different opinions on this. And, and Matt and I had this discussion yesterday because I had a gentleman call me. He has a lake bottom aeration system. This is a middle Tennessee scenario. Um, yeah. he, he's using a group that told him not to use the lake bottom aeration system and only use his surface fountain. The pond's pretty deep. Uh, it's got some 12 and 19 feet water in it. Um, and, and the thought process behind that is that you're going to make a homogenous mixture of warm water that's going to stress the fish if you're running the aeration system. Well, all of his fish died yesterday, and that was because the lake was deep enough to stratify, create a thermocline. He had toxic water on the bottom. He had oxygen in the surface portion, which is called the epilimnon, had a heavy rain. The fountain went out, so there was no emergency aeration. The pond had a true turnover, and if he had been running the lake bottom aeration system, it would not have happened because the thermocline wouldn't have been in place. None of his fish would have died. And for the most part, in most parts of the country, this time of year, your water temperatures just aren't going to be so hot that you're going to be stressing your fish. And if you are, I would prefer to have a few stressed fish than a lake full of dead fish. So (laughs) uh, that's that's my take on it. So here's, I mean, you just, this is, I don't, I mean, to me, this is settled science. In the Southeast, if you're not running a lake bottom aeration system in the proper, in the proper way, and in the proper pond that's deep enough for them, you know, anything over about five feet deep can be set up with a lake bottom aeration system. If you're not doing that, you're setting yourself up for a fish kill, which is going to cost you 
way more than what the aeration system cost. Yep. The uh, one aeration, out of all our podcast aeration talks, we've done two of them, if not three, are one of the highest listens to podcasts. And by all means, go back and take a listen to that. We just do a one specifically on turnovers. So uh, I'm not going to dial into that. But I will say this. Two ways to put air into a pond. One is photosynthesis. Next time, second one is agitation. So emergency aeration. Anything that you can agitate that water to basically increase surface area of the water, add oxygen, and release its junk is beneficial. And if all you have is a fountain, that'll work. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about a fountain to address your question. Wait a minute. And Let's stop there, though. Let's stop there. It what? will work depending on the size of the lake and, and the size of the event. If you have one fountain in a 10-acre lake and it's it's turning or the you've had an oxygen depletion from a phytoplankton dial or a vegetation dial or just a bunch of hot, cloudy days and a hot night, one fountain in a 10-acre lake is not going to save that lake. Right. So hey, you're exactly right. That's going to lead into my where I was going to go with this is that so there is something known. I'm not going to even go into it very deep other than define it. It's called uh, it's aeration efficiency, standard aeration efficiencies, right? So uh, commonly known because we need to do it in agriculture because how big of paddle wheel, how big of surface aeration, how big of emergency aeration. So some of these catfish ponds go in emergency every single night. And so they have to be able to add enough oxygen to keep things maintained for a little bit. So how do we get that calculation? So Really, it comes down to around one horsepower per aeration, and that's a standard, aka, which you love this line, the Mendoza line used in aeration oh is one. <laughs> the Matt Mendoza got, line. Matt, the, the Matt, Mendoza. I had to work it in. I had to work it in there. I had to work. Matt it has in. an it uncle. His up. name is Matt. Has an uncle. His name is Johnny Mendoza. Apparently, <laughs> and he must have been some average. type of baseball player. The most average baseball player that ever lived the planet. The uh, that all being said is the Mendoza is one horsepower per of aeration per acre of water. Hence, ten acres, ten horsepower. Now, once you throw a fountain on there, you lose three quarters of its efficiency. You say, "How?" I'm still throwing water, but if it, a true surface aeration, meaning a paddle wheel or something that frost the water at the surface now you're compressing that water into pressure losing volume to get energy to throw it really efficiently in the sky so when you have to throw a water that doesn't want to be up against gravity 13 feet up in the air you're losing its efficiency because you decrease the volume to get pressure and so so therefore you lose your standard oxygen efficiency does it aerate yes if it's the only thing you got in your toolbox then utilize it but you understand that when you start getting things pretty, you're losing its efficiency all the way around on emergency aeration systems. This why moving this on. Matt so this why Matt's so smart. I love that. What do you call that again? The aeration coefficient standard efficiency example. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, so how do this is from our old friend and a group expert and a guy that is a true. Uh, great guy of salt of the earth, Nate Herman. What's up, how Nate? Do you, how do you best recommend sampling or 
learning a fish population in a pond if it's too small or can't get in electrofishing equipment. Electrofishing equipment. <laughs> That's what I recommend. <laughs> I, ain't, I ain't seen a pond too small for me to put an electrofishing boat in. Uh, all right, use a same net if you want to. One of the older methods is with the same net. You can kind of get off in the water, you know, out to five feet deep. Pull a side net that's six feet tall and kind of scoop up a corner and get a pretty good uh, sample of what the fish population looks like. You will typically only see some of the smaller fish, uh, depending on the time of the year. But yeah, you know, it's an effective way. Uh, I, I did it once and uh, bought an electro fishing boat immediately after that. So yeah. um, I never, I, I literally, the very first sur fish survey we did was on uh lookout mountain in northeast alabama and uh we pulled a same net and the next day i called somebody i was like i need an electro fishing boat <laughs> <laughs> can't do this again so yeah but yeah there is um there is it's very hard to get the overall population without a electro fishing or some kind of trapping scenario electro fishing usually is a standard in the fishery world, American Fishery Society uses it, standardizes it throughout the, even using electro fishermen, electro fishing equipment in creeks and rivers, uh, and to be able yeah. to get their sampling equipment. So There's it is a very backpacks. efficient way of getting an overall snapshot of the fish population at that particular time. Now there's other ways. Absolutely. One is, uh, just like Troy said, is taking a seine after the spring of the year and seining the edges because a lot of times the, everything that'll be um, young fry will be in the shorelines and you'll be able to get uh, a good account of what reproduced that year and some, some speciation. There's another way with uh, fike nets. I've seen those used. Um, some states will actually use for walleye, I think still do, is some combination of electrofishing for some deeper water stuff with some gill netting very simple small gill net will be able to tell but that a lot of times you have a loss of fish when you do that so kill but yeah. not, that is not used very much to be honest with you but the most common way on a bass bluegill population to see how your fisheries is doing is doing is with relative weights of your largemouth bass so go out there and fish catch your largemouth bass get your relative weight chart get which i recommend highly smart fish app and uh when you sign up for pwnra you get smart fish app for free for one year so go to pwnra.org and just check 10 questions and you get the smart fish app for year for a year and then it'll tell you what the relative weight is of those largemouth right on the shoreline of your pond and then tells if you need to harvest them or keep them so um and then you can actually see by looking at your apex predator how well your forage base is doing under there because if it's if you've got a lot of forage base a lot of bluegill underneath a lot of health good water quality you do a lot of times you'll have abundance of those fish and you can see the indication basically just indication of where your fishery is with the top end predator moving on i like it okay let's do one more You'll like this one. Basically, I have a plant around the edge that looks like dollarweed that grows into the, grows in 
grows in grass. Okay. And it's called pinny diameter. Called pinny wort. Di- di- yep. Diameter is two inches and grows like a vine on top of the water. Any ideas of what it is and what to do? Thanks a lot, Pat. Mike answers because oh, the image. He says, Yeah, he actually answers. I said, Doubt it's going to be very hard to get a po- positive answer without a picture. Look up Pennyworth, though. And that's that. but but he's right on and, and and when you answer this i know this is a pretty easy one in softball but i want people to understand the identification how important it is on fisheries and what they need to do if they want to get some information on 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 the id uh now listen on, on the very top of the facebook page y'all uh, kelly duffy um posted and it's at the very top i think i think it stays there he posted the proper way to let us identify plants. And it's not by just taking a picture in the water column. It's not by laying a massive shovel full on a dock where there's no way to understand leaf structures. It's pictures in the habitat, in the water column where it's growing, a picture of the flower, if you can, with a size comparison of some type, and then the plant laid out either on a dock or a whiteboard of some type so we can see the contrast and how the leaves are laid out with another size reference there. If you'll do that, uh, we can we can identify anything you post on the Facebook page. But the species talked about here is hydrocotyl sp. I don't know which species it is. There's a lot of different hydrocotyls, but uh, if it's a problem, it's pretty easy to control uh, with multiple multiple herbicides. Um, you may even can pull it a little bit. I don't know. It, I never see hydrocotyl uh, in Tennessee or Alabama as much of an. It never becomes much of an issue. Right. ID is a very big issue, and this is why we created the Facebook page and PWNRA to, to help educate. So utilize those resources. But if you just take a picture of 30 feet back of the green glob in your pond, then you will not get the answer you need. And the answer you may want to hear is probably wrong <laughs> if that's the case, because there's IDs are very, very important. Algaes that look like weeds and some weeds that look like some some algaes and uh, getting the correct ID to get the certain chemistry to be able to help your success of your direction is, is really, really important. And for the love of all that is good and kind, I just want to <laughs> make this point. How many moderators are on the page now, Matt? I think we have six. Yeah, I think we have more than that. Six. There's six moderators, maybe 10, I don't know, for almost 20,000 people now. Uh, and we all have careers outside of Facebook moderation. <laughs> Although <laughs> Facebook moderation has become like a fourth career, which is fine. I love it. I really do love it. But um, Dr. Google uh, is not always correct. Uh, we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, great. I'm just saying we... Uh, you know, and you can tag us. You can tag Troy Goldsby, Matt Rail, Kelly Duffy, Michael Jefferson. Uh, who else? Uh, out of uh, we've got uh, out of Texas, uh, uh, Josh. Josh uh, Flowers. Josh, Josh Flowers. Flowers. Stephen Barton. Yep. Stephen Barton. Uh, nope. So there's seven the, uh, of us. And when we when we answer, we uh, we're typically right. Matt's not always right. Uh, Kelly and I, Kelly Duffy and I, are always right. So, yeah. What is the old saying? I was, I was right. I thought I was I wrong was, one uh, time, but then I, 
Yeah. yeah, and then and then I looked in the encyclopedia and realized everybody else was. So that's <laughs> wrong. Everybody else was wrong. Yeah. Right. No, I'm, I, tongue in cheek. I'm teasing. Uh, we but we do try really really hard to provide the best information possible. And sometimes, y'all, just so y'all know this, if there is a uh, flagrant uh, misrepresentation of how something works and it's done publicly, sometimes we'll answer that publicly. Because we feel like, again, this is an educational page, and uh, there's a lot of opinions and a lot of uh, Google facts that get tossed out from time to time uh, that are not accurate. Uh, So when we check those things, it's not that we're trying to be uh, arrogant or hateful or anything, but we do feel like sometimes something that that is very, very flagrant needs to be addressed so that people understand the appropriate way to do things. Every time I say something about a herbicide, I follow it with follow your label laws and your state laws. Uh, That's the only way I know how to make sure uh, what I'm saying is not being misconstrued uh, in some way. So, um, yeah, there you go. That's right. We got we got one more. I know we're not going to answer all 60 questions, but uh, so some people are going to get we're going to hear gripes. But this one, uh, this gentleman. I actually listened to the first two podcasts on aeration, but you guys never really talked about windmills. Why not? From Brandon. Because they, how, how blunt can I be? Well, a lot of times when windmills, when you need them, they're just not there. The uh, wind, Look, in the majority of the country, the wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day. Uh, and you need, for the most part, you need aeration 24 hours a day. And specifically, you really need aeration. If you're only going to aerate for a portion of the day, it needs to be the nighttime hours um, from kind of sundown until well after sunup, maybe 8 or 10 in the morning. Uh, and if you if there's no wind, you're not pumping air. And they're very, very, very inefficient. Uh, most windmill aerators, I think, probably operate one airhead. I've, maybe two. I don't know. But well, you got to lion in the background oh, yeah, that's sophie that's sophie that's our little three pound um uh, <laughs> bavare yorkshire terrier you, you uh, just so got so much less less respect after sophie I, I have we have five dogs and a cat uh currently uh i can't talk about that right now man i'm trying to be serious <laughs> yes so windmill Windmills. So how many the, how many uh, wind, how many airheads, how many stations can one windmill operate? Yeah, I've seen I've seen one or two with two two uh, diffusers on them. But let's just cut it down to the chase. There's some aeration when you just don't have anything out there um and you don't have power, then windmills can be there can be some scenarios because I never talk in absolute on the lake management is that that windmills could fall into a place that I could see them acceptable. The windmills do not blow when you need them there. Like, for instance, in the evenings, you need really a good mixing. Your your water oxygen crashes in the nights, lowest in the mornings, and and the windmills just not being there. But is it better than nothing? If you're just truly trying to keep a fish alive, um, there could be some scenarios into which they could keep a fish alive a little bit more than, than not um, on that scenarios. I have seen them do very good actually for de-icing systems. So moving the diffuser to the shoreline and keeping three to 5% of your body water open in the winter time. 
I found some really good solutions there um, on that. But a lot of times, the, the capital cost of a windmill is the same as as aeration systems, and and the aeration systems on most of them run around four or four and a half amps. So you're looking at you know twenty five dollars a month, maybe on high electrical costs, on a running amps of of, and then you have total control. So I like control when I like managing lakes. Why? Because you know you're always against mother nature, and then you can decrease the more of the variables of the situation, then you have higher uh, percentage of success. So having a constant aeration system that I can run and depend on it, it seems when the capital cost is relatively the same, seems pretty logical to me. And seems logical. You know, and, and and too with modern with modern electric aeration systems, this whole power thing, I'm not saying it can be thrown out the window every time. But as long as you have power within about a mile of your pond, you don't have to have power. Now, you may have, you'll have to trench some PVC or pecs or something in the ground to carry the, to carry the volume of air down there. But you don't have to run a power source down to your pond with most modern aeration systems that are electric. So, um, I, look, I know of a guy that has a pond. It turned over the other day, had a windmill aeration system on it. Wasn't running, no wind. It's hot in Tennessee and Alabama in August, June, July, and August. And the only time we get a breeze, if if there is a breeze, it ain't gonna blow a windmill enough to pump any air. Uh, it, it, it they're just very inefficient in a lot of parts, especially in the southeast where it's as hot and dry as it has been this summer. So, and listen, I don't want a bunch of windmill aeration companies railing on me about it. Uh, y'all show me the peer-reviewed research that says that they are as efficient or better uh, than electric systems, and we'll talk about it. But until then, I don't, I don't need nobody harping on me about my stance on windmill aeration. Uh, and I will say, if you're looking at alternate energy, there is some interesting. You need to keep your ear down because solar air is making some advancements out there. It is. Solar air is uh, – there's a company, there's one company specifically that I'm not going to mention right now, but they've, they've got a system that is about to be ready to go. There's, there's some good advancements in solar with battery backups that are, that are coming down, the, down the pot. Yep. And so if you're just stuck with no power or want to be off the grid solar, um, I would be, I'd be looking at that search right away because that there's in the next year, there's some of have that have been out. Then all of a sudden there is going to be, um, some really neat, cool stuff that's well that's out there. And the so, one, the one thing about works. solar that is the one thing about solar that's been a little bit inhibiting is, uh, it's been very expensive for a long time to have the solar powered one with a battery backup, and that was because there was a patent, uh, and they uh, kind of ran the market. I think that patent may have fallen off, and now some other companies are looking at doing it. So, um, it's good for that's the market. Uh, yeah. I think that'll wrap it up. Matt, Matt's an L7, just like out of the sandlot. He's an L7 square. He goes to bed at 9.35 every night. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're I think so I, I, I'd love to do a few more, but maybe next time. If this goes over well and people like this, people, you know, uh, and give us uh, some feedback that they enjoyed it, then we'll do another one and then and uh, answer a few more questions. How about that? I think I seem a little ornery tonight, and I apologize if I did. <laughs>
You're a little bit tired. I could tell. We're getting close to the end of the season, folks. We are ready for the end of the season. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, thank you for listening to another Sitting Dockside and from Matt and Troy. See you. This podcast, Sitting Dockside, is brought to you by Private Water Natural Resource Association, a nonprofit built just to educate private pond and lake owners in the water quality and fisheries and all of that good stuff. There's videos, there's places to read, and there's a community built right into that website. So if you want to learn more, jump to pwnra.org and click. And by all means, make sure that this continues in the future. Podcast, education, video, become a member. If nothing else, there's tons of platforms. YouTube, Facebook, Just hit like, send a comment. We appreciate everything you can do here at PWNRA.